0: Local information as well. Um a couple of individual uh, updates. Uh the mayor of the village of Monticello is announcing that the village recycling is ceasing. Uh again, that's the village of Monticello announcing uh no recycling going on right now. Uh the evening is coming on and with it we've been told snow snow is likely uh, light snow tonight, no sign of accumulation continuing into the morning tomorrow. The day will get warm tomorrow, though, with a high 49, no sign of precipitation tomorrow night, clear overnight, low down to 29, mostly sunny on Wednesday at high 49. A chance of some snow coming again on Wednesday night. So We'll keep an eye out for that. Again, this is uh, WJFF making waves will be up shortly. We're going to hear some live headlines first, and then the Kingfisher project will be with us. Uh Kingfisher project, from the archives so you want to stay tuned for that and keep it tuned right here remember you can find out all sorts of information at wjffradio.org and we're here for you public radio for sullivan county the catskills northeast pa for the last 30 years
1: live from npr news in washington i'm jack Spear. president trump has announced new federal recommendations for americans to avoid gatherings of more than 10 people NPR's Isha Roscoe reports federal officials say the measures are necessary to prevent the worst possible outcomes from the spread of the coronavirus.
2: President Trump says that all Americans, including those that are young and healthy, should stop unnecessary travel and eating out at restaurants. These recommendations are for the next 15 days.
3: If everyone makes this uh, change or these critical changes and sacrifices now, we will rally together as one nation and we will defeat the virus.
2: The administration is also encouraging homeschooling when possible. Trump acknowledged that all this could lead to a recession and said the best thing he can do for financial markets is to get the spread of coronavirus under control. Ayesha Roscoe, NPR News.
1: U.S. researchers have given a healthy volunteer the first shot of an experimental coronavirus vaccine. Today's test, however, is just the first step in a long process. The effort is one of several worldwide trying to come up with protection against COVID-19, even as the pandemic grows. The study is run by scientists at the Kaiser Permanente Washington Research Institute in Seattle. The shots were developed by the National Institutes of Health in record time after the new coronavirus exploded from China. Federal courts across the country are scrambling to adapt to the coronavirus pandemic. As NPR's Ryan Lucas explains, the courts are taking steps to try to limit the spread of COVID-19.
4: The Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts has put together a task force to share information and guidance. But there is no blanket decision that covers the country's more than 100 district and circuit courts. Instead, each one is crafting its own response in coordination with state and local health officials. And the responses vary. In the Southern District of New York, for example, all criminal trials scheduled to begin between Monday and April 27th have been postponed. Judges are encouraged to hold hearings and conferences by phone or video link, and trials already underway will continue. In the District of Utah, in contrast, individuals who have recently traveled to hard-hit countries like China or Italy, or who have been in contact with someone who has, are barred from entering the courthouse. But beyond that, it is to a large extent business as usual. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
1: The nation's major airlines are seeking a massive multi-billion dollar government bailout. The industry group Airlines for America in a statement, saying the airlines are asking for at least $25 billion in direct aid, as much as another $25 billion in loans and tax relief. The airline group citing the rapid spread of COVID-19, along with government and business-imposed restrictions on air travel. group says the assistance is needed immediately, saying, quote, this is a today problem, not a tomorrow problem. Stocks plunged by their single biggest amount in more than three decades as mid fears of a widening coronavirus outbreak. The Dow was down 2,997 points. This is NPR.
4: Here's a coronavirus update from WJFF Radio Catskill. The governors of New York, New Jersey and Connecticut announced a regional approach to combating COVID-19 in the tri-state area. The uniform standards will limit crowd capacity for social and recreational gatherings to 50 people effective tonight at 8 p.m. The three governors also announced restaurants and bars will close for on-premise service and move to takeout and delivery services only. These measures will take effect at 8 p.m. tonight. Establishments will be provided a waiver for carryout alcohol. Also effective at 8 p.m. tonight, the governor said they will temporarily close movie theaters, gyms and casinos. This uniform approach to social distancing is meant to slow the spread of the novel coronavirus or COVID-19 in the tri-state area. In Sullivan County, Public Health Director Nancy McGraw announced today that a case of COVID-19 has been confirmed at the county-owned and operated care center at Sunset Lake and Liberty. A healthcare worker in the nursing home tested positive for the virus. McGraw says, "To date, none of our care center residents or staff are exhibiting elevated temperatures or respiratory sy- symptoms." End quote. Sullivan County New York manager has ordered all public and private school districts closed for three weeks through April 3rd. Sullivan County BOCES will also be closed through April 3rd. Sullivan County remains under a state of emergency. Most county government offices will be minimally staffed with many county employees working digitally from home. Stay tuned to WJFF Radio Catskill for more information as we receive it. And you can find more links about the virus on WJFFradio.org.
0: Seven o'clock on on Monday night, give or take six minutes. That means it's time for making waves, weekly magazine uh, program here on WJFF. Of course, with the virus, uh, coronavirus situation going on, we've limited access to WJFF studios to just uh, a handful of people, just the three staff means our volunteer producers are not able to make it. But the Making Waves crew sent along uh, great stuff for you tonight. We've got an archival edition of the Kingfisher Project, and I think two new pieces we're going to hear about delphiniums uh, from Taz Kowalchuk and Wisp Farm, and then also uh, a nice long talk about all sorts of aspects of Japanese knotweed uh, that was recorded by Rosie Star just a couple weeks ago. So stay tuned for all of this coming up on Making Waves. Right now it's time for the Kingfisher Project.
5: Welcome to the Kingfisher Project. The Kingfisher
6: Project is based here at WJFF in memory of my daughter, Rebecca Pizal, who was shot and killed in a heroin-related incident. It started because of an essay that she wrote and was read at her memorial service about an injured Kingfisher bird by her high school teacher. And since then, the Kingfisher Project started at WJFF in January of 2014 to raise awareness about the heroin and opiate a-
5: epidemic across this country and in Jeffersonville and uh, thank you for that introduction Julie uh, my name is Barbara Graff, and on the air with us tonight will be David Truman uh, David Truman is an attorney as well as a psychologist and a graduate of Columbia University Law School he represents individuals and healthcare professionals in a variety of areas including practice issues healthcare coverage and reimbursement issues and other insurance matters, including those that have to do with the denial of coverage for those who are in, uh, who are at least trying to get into recovery and trying to get access to treatment. Uh, David, thank you for joining us tonight.
3: Thank you, Barbara, for having me on the show. I appreciate it.
5: Certainly. And um, as we were saying to our listeners earlier, we're going to talk about one case in particular, and many of our listeners may be familiar with the case of Will Williams, and that is the son of Bill Williams, uh, who died, I believe, at the age of 24, uh, almost five years ago, just about exactly now. Uh, it was December 2nd, 2012, that Will Williams uh, lost his life after uh, fatally overdosing on heroin. And after he was denied coverage for treatment, he showed up, I believe, with his bags packed at the door of a New York City hospital, uh, and the hospital was ready to take him in, but the insurance company uh, denied that coverage. So Will went back out into the night, and uh, shortly thereafter, uh, a few days later, he did... Overdose, I believe, right in the um, Williams home. So I wonder, uh, David, if you can tell us about that case. But before you do that, uh, we mentioned you were a psychologist first. What happened? Why why are you now a lawyer?
3: Well, I, I was a psychologist for about practicing clinical psychologist for about 20 years. And while I was a practicing psychologist, insurance companies and managed care, the ability of insurance companies to tell you whether the care your doctor says is really necessary is really necessary from their point of view something that's that we all have had experience with and so when I was a psychologist this began to become popular that insurance companies would tell you whether they would pay for the care that your doctor recommended and whether they would really call it medically necessary Um, obviously doctors recommend care that they believe is medically necessary so what we had Happening at that time was the beginning of what we're all familiar with now, which is insurance companies getting in between the doctors and their patients and making decisions about whether they'll pay for for treatment or not. So I was, as a psychologist, I was required to get preauthorization for continued sessions with my patients. And I had to submit documentation that, that what I said was the matter with my patients and why they needed treatment was really why they needed treatment. And very frequently, the insurance company would deny additional treatment after I'd requested it. Uh, the case that that really made me decide I had to do something was I had a, an individual who was terribly abused as a child. As an adult woman, she had, had significant problems trusting people, and she, she just um, had very disrupted relationships with others. But more than that, she was depressed and suicidal. Every three or four months, I would have to submit a request to the insurance company to get more treatment approved for my patient. She clearly needed treatment and she clearly needed from my point of view treatment twice a week and she was seeing a psychiatrist who agreed, and psychiatrist was managing her medication. what was the tipping point was she had attempted suicide one evening, and my um,
5: We've been talking with David Truman, a lawyer and former psychologist who specializes in an area of law that has to do with health insurance companies and whether or not they, they will cover what the professionals recommend. We'll be bringing Mr. Truman back onto the, back onto the air in just a second.
3: I was saying this that my patient who had just attempted suicide and who needed additional medication, the insurance company, then told us that she could only have six more sessions because she was too disturbed and needed too much treatment. And after the six sessions, she would have to go to a self-help group, and they would not approve additional sessions. It was mind-boggling to me that they did that, and and I had been struggling, as my colleagues had been, for quite a while with insurance companies. And I decided that I needed to do something about it. So I I applied to law school, and I went to Columbia, and I graduated uh, 20 years ago. And um, I taught taught at Columbia for for 10 years. I retired a couple years ago, and I've just been working on helping individuals and healthcare providers fight and manage care and insurance companies. Um, And that's what I do. I, I help people appeal their denials, and I help people sue insurance companies when. Someone in their family has died because the insurance company refused to give them the treatment that doctor said was necessary.
5: Well, that's a, so that's a pretty story. So I did have a case story. that was
3: a turning point for me, Barbara.
5: That, that's an amazing story. Do, do you know what happened to that young woman?
3: Actually, I she dropped out of treatment because she was so upset that, that, you know, someone she'd begun to trust, namely me, couldn't stand up to the powers that be. For her, I guess it was... Well, these horrible people are abusing me again and no one can protect me. She dropped out of treatment. I didn't hear from her. Three years later, I heard from her and she sent me a card. she moved away and she thanked me for my help and, and she said she was doing okay. Whether she's doing okay or not, I don't know. But at least I got a card from her saying that, that she was alive and well somewhere.
5: Well, we'll hope for the best there. Yeah. So, so I'm uh, moving on to the, to the, uh, Case of Will Williams. How is it that you and uh, Bill Williams and Margot had Will's mother? How did you encounter one another? Um,
3: they contacted me. I'm I'm mm, fairly well known um, in the the legal community for doing the work I do. Um, a lot of attorneys know me. I give a lot of continuing legal education seminars to lawyers on on how to appeal and sue insurance companies. So, I, I don't, I have to tell you honestly, Barbara, I don't exactly remember how they got to me, but they did contact me. And I talk with them about their case, and, and of course it's, it's the horrible case I hear about all the time. Someone's young adult child who's been on substances for a number of years, not approved by an insurance company, winds up overdosing and dying, or another story I hear very often, someone's adult child goes, not approved by insurance companies, goes into some type of group living situation comes back one night and overdoses and dies. Those those are the stories I hear very very frequently. And, and so tragic, so Margot so. and Bill came to me and I talked with them and, and I said I'll be be happy to represent you because you know this is this is one of those horrible cases. And what made it worse is that the companies that that we are suing. Um, were investigated by the New York State Attorney General's office. And the Attorney General found that they had practices that discriminated against individuals with substance use disorders by denying them a treatment so that, that they basically were violating the parity laws. That that treatment for substance use was not approved as, as anywhere near as often as treatment for medical or surgical benefits. And the, the Attorney General had findings against them that, that they had violated uh, a number of New York State and federal laws, including parity laws.
5: And what is exactly is the parity law?
3: So parity law, which both New York has and the, the, um, the United States has, mandates that individuals with mental health and substance use uh, difficulties must be afforded the same level of treatment with the same cost-sharing, as individuals with surgical or medical needs. So, for example, if, if um, the co-pay for a treatment is, uh, or the co-insurance for treatment for medical needs is 10% under policy, it can't be 30% for substance use. So there has to be an equivalence between the amount of treatment that's, that is approved and the payment for that treatment
5: and i think this is really the heart of the matter in many ways this this parity law that not that many people know about i mean maybe you encounter that in your practice a lot i think that people are not really up to date on this idea that it's the same thing as you going in with a broken leg as if as if you have a substance use disorder
3: absolutely absolutely barbara and and I'd like to to just explain one one thing so that our listeners understand. The way the whole um, inequality works out is through what's called utilization review. Utilization review is the practice by insurance companies to determine whether they will consider the care a person's doctor recommends as medically necessary, to be medically necessary from the insurance company's point of view. So if your doctor says you need surgery on your knee, the insurance company will determine whether they think you really need surgery on your knee. The reason why this is important is because the insurance company is the one that's going to pay for the surgery on the knee or whatever treatment we're talking about. So what happens with substance use disorder and with individuals who require mental health treatment, particularly inpatient treatment, is that the insurance companies say, wait a minute. If we don't admit them, then we don't have to pay so much. So what happens is that during this utilization review process, these insurance companies, in in my case and many other insurance companies, wind up having a greater percentage of denials, of requests for care for substance use in patient treatment than, let us say, for surgical treatment. And so individuals with mental health needs and substance use needs don't get approval for their treatment in an equal way as individuals with surgical or medical needs which is what parity is about parity is supposed to be that there's an equivalence; that there's not supposed to be any way of treating individuals with substance use disorder differently than if they had some other disorder which we all know society treats individuals with substance use disorder as if it's something other than a medical disorder as if someone who has a substance use problem could just all of a sudden will away their problems and say oh sure I'm just going to say I don't need these substances anymore, and I'll be fine. But it's a biological, biochemical disorder, just like it's a biological disorder if one has cancer. But insurance companies, and this is why the law has been changing in New York and elsewhere, the, but insurance companies try to treat this as something different. And I think it's just a reflection of the stigma in society about individuals with substance use problems and with mental health issues.
5: And you know, and that's that's the stigma. Uh, come, getting right in between the patient and and their medical needs the, sti- the stigma that we talk about all the time in in terms of addiction and substance use disorder um, and going to the going to the case of will williams the the defendants the ones that you that you are <clears throat> you were tackling in the legal system are emblem health health insurance plan of greater New York, and value options and I know that many many people will be familiar with those with those providers and those companies because they are huge. Uh, And you mentioned the Attorney General. Did the Attorney General investigate and then uh, penalize these companies before or after Will Williams uh, was denied the coverage?
3: So this was after, and it included the time period for which Mr. Williams was requesting coverage and, and payment. Um, what they they did is they, they had findings and they, they find the companies and they required the companies to um, uh, provide a new determination for those individuals who were denied coverage. Unfortunately, Mr. Williams case at that point he was already deceased. so so there was no equity for him. there was nothing to be done for him. and unfortunately that's the case with many many people is that that, there's no redoing this, uh, and, and I want to correct something you said, Barbara. It was actually right after he was denied that he left the hospital and overdosed the first time. So if, if you imagine an individual who is, is a substance user, relies on substances to deal with pain, who finally gets, gets the, the awareness that something terrible is going to happen to him, so he really needs treatment and attempts to get treatment and is denied, what's his defense mechanism going to do? Well, am going to use drugs. So he overdosed after he left the hospital that day. He recovered from the overdose, and four days later he overdosed again. This time it put him into a coma from which he died, as you said, in early December. Had he been approved for treatment, he would have been in the hospital. They requested inpatient detoxification treatment for him. He would have been in the hospital unable to overdose. So his death would absolutely not have occurred from those overdoses had they provided him the treatment that, that the hospital said he needed.
5: Yes, and this this was happening this exact time of year, five years ago, uh, that Will Williams, uh, he actually had his bag packed and, and I believe and went to, what hospital was he um, seeking treatment at?
3: He went to Beth Israel.
5: Beth Israel and they they were They wanted to admit him, I understand. They
3: requested, they requested authorization for payment for inpatient detoxification treatment. Now, I'd like to, I know know that that we don't have that much time left. Um, I'd like to be able to tell our listeners some things that they they need to be able to to do if they are family members in this situation. So I don't know if you want me to talk more about the case, but I do want to get to that, Barbara, because part of my mission in talking to people and in writing and lecturing about this is to help people understand what they can do in relation to this.
5: Absolutely, and before we get to that, just uh, if you could uh, kind of close the loop on, on the uh, case that's now going on. Uh, what what kind of relief can we then see hope for in the Williams case? Well, the Williams
3: case is somewhat complicated, so we can. We're asking for damages for his pain and suffering and his death. And New York damages for wrongful death are, are fairly limited unless you're making money. So just because you might you might die wrongfully doesn't mean that, that the person or entity that caused your death is liable for very much money, unless, of course, you're making money and you're supporting people. Like if you're a, a middle-aged executive making $5 million a year, then under New York law, then the defendants are going to be responsible for whatever was lost to the people that you were supporting. However, New York does not place a value on individuals' lives. So if someone is wrongfully killed, if there's a wrongful death, New York does not have a very high value on that. We are asking for pain and suffering, and we're asking for wrongful death and punitive damages against the companies because of their pattern of behavior that, that we believe the Attorney General identified. We are, are, are um, um, arguing and contending that these companies had a, a pattern that resulted in the, the unwarranted, improper denial of inpatient um, substance use treatment to individuals, including Mr. Williams, and that this pattern was what resulted in his death and that they did not fairly do utilization review and fairly um, assess Beth Israel's request for treatment for him.
5: Yes, I, I noticed in your complaint that it's punitive against uh, emblem uh, health and value options, etc., and exemplary. In other words, you are asking the court to make an example of them. Is that, that correct?
3: That is correct. And punitive damages are not easy to obtain, and punitive damages are awarded in New York when an individual or an entity engages in behavior that is, is willful, were recklessly indifferent to the health of members of, of the public or society at large. And we believe that, that the behaviors that, that the conduct that was identified by the, by the Attorney General falls into that category. Um, these companies were, were identified by the Attorney General as engaging a variety of of different mechanisms to interfere with the authorization and payment for treatment for individuals with mental health and substance use issues.
5: In other words, they did it on purpose.
3: Well, the, the attorney general, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that. The attorney general seems to think that, and I'm sure that that on your website you can post a link to those those findings by the attorney general for the public to read. Those are all public documents.
5: And already multi-million dollar punitive da- a pu- a penalties from the attorney general is that correct?
3: Correct. Correct. Okay. But that so that does that does does nothing for for any of the individuals who did not receive treatment and certainly doesn't do anything for the individuals who died because they didn't receive treatment.
5: Absolutely. And well that's that's why we're on the air every week to tell you the truth, because there's nothing that will bring back Rebecca Pizol, but we're here to help others who absolutely. who are still who are still with us and still and, in the struggle.
3: Absolutely and, and I will be glad to do anything for anyone in relation to this. And the the for our listeners, the toll free a number for the New York State Attorney General's Health Care Bureau is, is 800-428-9071. I'll say that again, 800-428-9071.
5: And, and uh, thank you so much, David, for being with us. Okay.
6: My name is Tanis Kowalchuk, and I'm the flower producer at Willow Wisp Organic Farm, located here in the upper Delaware Valley. I specialize in organic flowers grown for the cut flower market and for designing weddings and other special events. So most of my flowers are the kind you would want to plant out in a home-cutting garden, be it perennial or annual, because I definitely grow both. Now, since it's March and since we have a propagation greenhouse on our farm, I'm going to be speaking today about the varieties that I've currently seeded up with a special focus on delphiniums, because I have just learned a trick that got me nearly 100% germination success rate. So for those of you listening out there who may not know what delphiniums are, I can describe them. They are often blue or pink or white. And they're on these very long spikes that are often seen in pictures of English country gardens or in the outdoor shots of the British baking show, if if you like to watch that one. They almost look unreal because they're so big and they're regal and they're heavily flowered and, and each flower actually has, um, like a black eye or a white eye on it. Okay. Hopefully that's gotten you a picture of what a delphinium looks like. So now let's just talk about how to grow them. In in years past, my germination rate has been anywhere from 20 to 50%. In the last few years, it's been actually really low, like closer to the 20%. And it's really quite poor compared to all the other flowers that I end up starting, which is about 30 other varieties, maybe 40 other varieties of flowers. And so this year, I started researching how to germinate delphiniums And I learned from a group that I'm a member of. It's called the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. And I just feel so incredibly grateful for this seed starting information. So here's my trick. What you need to do is take a paper coffee filter, make it quite damp with water, sprinkle delphinium seeds on the filter, and just sprinkle one variety, okay? So don't mix your varieties up. Sprinkle one variety of your delphinium seeds on the filter Fold it in half, press it together so that the seeds are making real good contact with the wet paper. And so then you'll get this like half moon of a coffee filter, right? Well, do even one more fold. So now you've folded it it into quarters and just place the folded filter in a Tupperware container uh, with a plastic transplant marker on top with the name of your variety written on it. Okay, so you'll know what that variety is. Then, You can proceed to do this with other varieties of delphiniums you might have. For me, I did five or six varieties this year. And it was mostly seed that I bought from a company called Geo Seed Company. If you're interested, my varieties were Bellamosum, Pacific Rim, Cliveden Beauty, Aurora, and Magic Fountain. So those were the delphiniums that I started this year. Okay, so... We've got all these wet coffee filters that have been labeled and they're placed in the um, in a Tupperware container. So I then put that Tupperware container into my fridge. I covered the Tupperware container so that the water moisture would remain. And I let that Tupperware container sit in the fridge for three days and three nights. Okay. I then took out the Tupperware opened it up, checked the dampness on those filters because you needed the seeds to stay damp. I added a little bit of water and then I let it sit on my counter for another three days. Okay, so that's three days in a fridge, three days on a counter in a house that was, well, I want to say 68. It probably wasn't that warm, but Let's say you want it to be around 68. (laughs) I then um, opened up the seed container after that. And I noticed that all those little seeds were sprouted. Okay. With joy and glee, I then planted my little sprouted delphinium seeds in 128 cell trays. You can plant them out into cups, into egg cartons, whatever you do to grow your flowers. And as of today, I have like six or seven trays that are just growing beautifully and with nearly 100% germination success. Since I am on the subject of delphiniums, I also want to talk a little bit about delphinium consolida, which is coming up beautifully in an unheated greenhouse here at Will-O-Wisp. Now, delphinium consolida is also known as larkspur, and it is a much thinner, more ethereal version of delphinium. And if you do happen to have access to an unheated tunnel, then what you can do is plant the seed directly into the soil in October. So the previous October, we planted seed and it will start growing out into the winter. And by March, it will look absolutely lush and green and just gorgeous. Um, Maybe it's the mild winter we've had this year, but this crop looks beautiful better than I'd ever seen any larkspur look at this time of year and um, you know they don't like hot weather so this is the time you want to be growing your larkspur and your delphinium. I do hope you might try to start your own delphiniums with a little bit of this information. It's always such a joy to start flowers from seed and of course it's a lot more economical. And I hope that the listeners of the female persuasion out there would like to join us this month on March 20th. We will be holding a women's equinox at the Calicoon Pantry at 6 p.m. Sponsored by my organization Farm Arts Collective um, and the Calicoon Pantry. And it will be a potluck. And I'm going to be bringing some sweet peas so that each woman can plant and bring home a number of little sweet pea plants in honor of the spring equinox. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Tannis Kowalchuk on WJFF. Have a great week. Thank
0: you, Tannis. This is Making Waves on WJFF. We're going to hand things over to Rosie Starr now.
6: For WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr in Honesdale, Pennsylvania, at the Wayne County Library on Main Street. Um, Every Saturday morning in the month of March, the Wayne County Library hosts a program, Food for Thought. And today's program on March 7th, we'll be hearing about knotweed, and it's presented by Steve Schwartz.
7: Hi, I'm Steve Schwartz. I'm a forager by trade, uh, but I also consult on conservation issues. And I was running around the region in the late summer of 2018. And if you remember, 2018 was a wet year. And everywhere I looked, knotweed was in bloom. And it was highly visible. It was very graphic. It was beautiful. And there was so much knotweed that I just started noticing not the knotweed, but the few people that were actually managing it. And I said, what we need to do is find a way to get more people interested in managing knotweed where they have it. And so I embarked on a project that um, we're kicking off right now. This is the first uh, event in a two-year project. So I'm, a, I'm trying it out on you guys. You're my uh, test case. Um, But under the uh, sponsorship of the Friends of the Upper Delaware River, we are doing a project that involves research of knotweed, management of knotweed through demonstration projects, and outreach to riparian landowners. The research is interesting. Everyone knows there's knotweed. How many people in the room have knotweed? And yet no one knows how much there is. So one part of the research is we're flying aerial photography flights to map the entire Delaware and then giving that to a GIS group at Chippensburg University to translate into digital maps to calculate the percentage of the floodplain of the Delaware that's actually inundated with knotweed. So we'll have some idea of that. And then those maps are given to another research group at Stroud Water Resources. We're going to do soil sampling and testing and put in markers and take cores and, uh, and see if there's any soil loss in knotweed uh, colonies versus native riparian vegetation. And the third thing is there are actually three species of knotweed, all of which are in the Upper Delaware. No one knows what the distribution of them are and the percentages of them are. And if we attack management of the knotweed, there might be some different management techniques for the different species. So everyone refers to Japanese knotweed and locally they call it bamboo and other things. There is also giant knotweed. And giant knotweed is named giant because it grows much taller and larger than the Japanese knotweed. And some of the research that people rely on is done in England where the conditions are a little bit different. Um, In England, they claim that they have no male plants or no female plants, I forget which. So uh, they don't reproduce by seed. Well, here they certainly reproduce by seed, we know that. Knotweed also reproduces by rhizome growth. The radial roots go out and they have nodes and then new plants come out of that. And uh, they also reproduce by fragments of the rhizome. So in a flood, if stuff is uprooted, then it will end up rooting somewhere else. So the third species of knotweed is called bohemian knotweed. And what that is, is a hybrid of giant and Japanese knotweed. And that's definitely comes from seed seed creation. Whether or not the seeds of the hybrid of the bohemian reproduce, we don't really know. But uh, we've identified bohemian knotweed in the region. As I said, it spreads rapidly through different mechanisms. It loves disturbed soil. It loves floodplains, which is by definition disturbed soil and is also a good place for the transport of the seeds or the rhizomes or the rhizome fragments. My concern is that knotweed crowds out all native riparian vegetation. And native riparian vegetation has a number of functions. One is that it holds the soils in place. One is that it's great for pollinators. Some people around here love knotweed honey because the bees are all over the knotweed when it's in flower and, uh, and it tastes good. But in the same area of, say, uh, where the knotweed establishes, there could be a native vegetation that flowers for six months that the bees can get pollen and nectar from. Whereas the, the knotweed, they can only get it for two weeks. So the question is is the native vegetation better because it's around throughout the cycle or is the knotweed better because it's very uh, prolific and abundant for a short period of time it inhibits succession so where knotweed establishes not only crowds out whatever is there but nothing else will grow in there in a active river area zone there's all kinds of plants that come in and change over time But where there's knotweed, there's not going to be any change. It leads to stream banks, destabilization, erosion, and soil loss. You'll see some photos of knotweed pretty much taking over entire islands in the Delaware. The islands not only are islands, but they serve various hydrological functions in terms of stream channels and flows and things like that, and they're dynamic. They change as the waters change, wet years, dry years and if they're overrun by knotweed, they're not gonna have that ability to change. Knotweed, it'll hold the gravel and cobbles in place, but it won't hold the soils. And eventually the bank will zip out and fall down. So some people think that where there's been active flooding, they'll see knotweed holding the bank in place. That's temporary. During that flood event, it probably did, but afterwards it won't. Here are some photos from our first flight in the fall of 2018. This is Calicoom. This entire island, this was in the fall, so the knotweed had gone dormant and turned red, and so the contrast between the red and the native Mm -hmm. vegetation is pretty apparent here. This entire island is covered in knotweed. That's patchy, it's interesting, we don't quite know how it establishes, but here are Right next to the Calhoun Bridge, you can see that the landowners have cut paths from their houses to the knotweed. Through the knotweed, from their houses to the river. This is Balzetti, up on the West Branch. Another island totally covered in knotweed. This entire plain is pretty much covered in knotweed. And, you know, you can pick out patches. Part of the challenge for Shippensburg is going to be to figure out how to translate this type of photography into GIS coming up with algorithms to say what color, what texture, whatever they see in the images. So this is what healthy riparian vegetation looks like. There are all kinds of grasses and herbs and shrubs and tree seedlings that are growing up in this area and they're providing all the services that the knotweed doesn't provide. They're holding the soils in place, they're providing forage, they're providing nectar and pollen throughout the season. This is uh, an area of an active river area where knotweed had grown down to here, to the edge of the grasses. Knotweed likes to be in wet areas, but it doesn't like its feet to be in the water. So it grew down until the conditions were too wet. And then uh, in 18 and even in 19, when we had high waters throughout the year, the knotweed on the edge died, and you get the bare soils. You know, part of our project is going to be to see what we can introduce and plant to take over areas where knotweed is managed and uh, compete with it. If, if nothing is done here, the knotweed will just grow back when the conditions are right. The active river area has tremendous seed bank, um, but it's not going to get the light and air when the knotweed grows up. As the river floods and comes up, it washes away all the topsoil, and all you're left is is with the understory of the soils, the cobble and gravel. And my personal concern for that is that sediment transport is bad for the river. It's bad for all kinds of things. We want to keep sediments in place. We want to build soils, and we want to keep them out of the river. And so... If the knotweed is not allowing other vegetation to grow, it's not doing its function, and uh, we want the other riparian vegetation to do that. Part of our project, and Jessica is uh, a partner in the project with the National Park Service, uh, part of our project is to provide different information and different techniques that landowners can use to manage knotweed. Penn State really is focused on eradication of knotweed. They rely heavily on the use of herbicides to do that. Not everybody wants to use herbicides on their property. I don't. It's expensive. I grow things on my property that I eat, and I wouldn't want herbicides to, to be in that. And so eradication is one objective, but it's very costly and difficult and expensive. So part of our goal in this project is to help people come up with other feasible, workable management objectives that will achieve some real results but may not lead to eradication. And personally, that's what I do on my property. Uh, It is easy to eradicate if you find it growing uh, in isolated plants or isolated patches. And it's always good to walk your property and see if you find it. And deal with it when it's just starting. Once it's established, once it's 10 or 12 feet tall, or where I live, you know, it stretches for miles and it's like 30 yards deep from the river up to the first bench, it's very difficult to eradicate. So, containment is another way to deal with it. And containment would be to work the edges, to get in and try to create pathways, to try to just set some objective on your patch that uh, that you can attack every year. Containment can be in different methods. So the methods that we're looking at in our knotweed outreach and demonstration project, there are going to be three demonstration sites. One at Skinners Falls, one at Deposit at a new Village Park, and the third at Hancock at Fireman's Field. So the demonstration plots for this project we're going to take mature stands of knotweed, divide them up into six plots, one will be a control plot where nothing is done, and then the other five will be different management techniques. Two of them will use herbicides, um, so there are two herbicide techniques that are used. One, one is called foliar, where the knotweed is cut and then later on it's sprayed with an herbicide that's approved for riparian use called rodeo. The second is injection, so you can actually get an injector, put some rodeo in it and inject it into each plant. And uh, it's effective, it's very time consuming, but it does limit the spread of the, of the herbicide and it targets it directly to the plant. And there, up our way, there are a few, a few uh, organizations like Flutter that have the injectors and you might be able to get them at uh, co-op extensions in different places. Two of our plots will use herbicides. One of our plots will use covering, so we're going to get a geotextile membrane, some kind of fabric that will cut the knotweed and then cover it and weight it down with bricks or stone. A fifth plot will be mechanical cutting. So my personal technique, I call it the Samson approach. I cut its hair three times a year. If I have the time, I try to cut it June 1st, July 1st and August 1st. June 1st is to get it when it's just coming up before the red-winged blackbirds nest in it, because they love to nest in it, and I don't want to cut their nest down. July 1st is to get it when it's growing, but allow other things, light and air, to grow up and try to compete with it. And then August 1st, after it starts flowering, I cut it so that it doesn't create seeds and, uh, and have more knotweed babies. If you look at my stretch of the river, I'm not winning, but I'm not losing. It looks completely different than my neighbors who are doing nothing. They have continuous, very deep, very dense stretches of knotweed that go on for hundreds and hundreds of yards. Mine, I have isolated patches, Then you actually see other grasses and riparian vegetation growing up and competing with it. One of the areas that I have has fiddlehead ferns, and the knotweed and the fiddlehead ferns seem to be doing this do si The fiddlehead ferns are spreading and then knotweed seems to be spreading into it. I, in my business, I sell fiddlehead ferns, so I really want to protect them. But if I found that if you don't get the knotweed, they will cover up the ferns and eventually the ferns will die. So the knotweed is typically not up when I'm harvesting fiddleheads. Uh, knotweed is frost sensitive. If it comes up before frost, it'll die. Uh, ferns are not. What I do is, my method is I have a good weed whacker with metal blades on it. uh, Where it's just knotweed or grasses or whatever, I just use it like a scythe, and it's pretty easy. Where I have fiddlehead ferns, by the time I'm cutting the knotweed, the ferns are this high. I have to go in there like a surgeon and cut around it and do all the stuff. So it's a lot more work, but the ferns like it. The final thing is, is once you've controlled or managed or eradicated the knotweed, what do you do to foster succession? And we don't really know yet. Um, What I've tried on my property is tried to throw different things that I find on the river plain into the knotweed patches and to see what, what works. I'm having a little bit of success with some things, but in our project it's a two-year project so in our project in the demonstration plots in the second year we're going to try both seeding with grasses and other riparian vegetation and planting stakes of willows and maybe some other stuff in half of each of the plots to see what can compete with the knotweed that remains or take over from the knotweed that's been eradicated 2020 we'll create the demonstration plots and do our techniques 2021 we'll continue those techniques on half the plots and uh, try some succession plantings on half the plots.
0: You're listening to a presentation by Steve Schwartz on Japanese knotweed, part of the March Wayne County Library series, Food for Thought is produced by Rosie Starr for Making Waves. Let's get back to it.
7: So, as I've already mentioned, uh, knotweed is a uh, good nesting habitat. It's good deer respite. They love to rest in it during the day. Lots of other mammals and rodents in the river plain love it. Pollinators love it for the two weeks it's in bloom. And then knotweed is also a good edible. Many people around here have talked about it as tasting like asparagus. It doesn't really taste like asparagus at all. It has a lot of the taste qualities and even nutritional qualities of rhubarb. So it can be eaten either savory or sweet. It can be eaten either raw or cooked. I've used it in salads. I've minced it up in salads. I've uh, I've cooked it into a compote. Uh, people make jellies and other things out of it. People make curries out of it. Uh, it's something worth experimenting with. When I got the order, they wanted it fresh. But if you go online, dried, powdered, Knotweed rhizome is available for purchase and uh, and I don't know if the company I sold it to is, was taking it fresh because that's where they want to start and then dry it out or it's easier to process from there. What I believe they were doing was drying it and then pulverizing it, grinding it into a powder and then putting it in capsules. There's a lot of information online about the use of knotweed. Uh, as an herbal medicine. Uh, Even NIH of all places has a pretty extensive page with a lot of the research citations on it that provide more information. One of the things I do is I uh, organize the Upper Delaware BioBlitz and every year we try to source all the flatware, all the plates and stuff uh, using biodegradable stuff and usually it's palm leaves And then last time we couldn't find palm leaf plates, so we ended up with sugar cane plates. And that just drove me crazy. Why should we be using sugar cane? It occurs to me that the fibrous nature of the knotweed stalk might be good for other things, like making paper or biofuels or flatware uh, pressed into a mold with some kind of binder. So let's think about ways that we can use it. We're not going to get rid of it but I think that if we all pitch in and try to control it and manage it where we have it, we're going to provide benefits to the environment and help retain the soils and uh, and make everything happy. And we wouldn't want to see it grown as an industrial product in, you know, meadows and pastures. And in fact, uh, the backstory of this company that purchased it from me is that they like to source things locally. They like to source things organic, and their supplier of knotweed rhizome was probably in Canada. So they reached out to Penn State, Penn, and they said, can you tell us how to cultivate knotweed on our property in Penn State? And Penn State said, well, we don't think that's a good idea. Why don't you call Steve? But you don't really get rid of all of it, so it's we're going to be following up and taking a look at where we dug it and seeing what the outcome is. Um, seeing if it, you know, we know it's going to come back there, but we think it'll come back less robust. Um, They want mature plants, so we probably can't harvest the same plot over and over again because we'll have much smaller rhizomes. Um, And it occurs to me that, you know, if they're willing to make annual commitments, then we actually need to manage some patch for harvest because we try to manage all patches for control and containment. Uh, which means cutting it. When you cut it, it, it probably saps the rhizome and makes it less mature. So uh, we might need to leave a patch for harvesting. Here's some links to further ID information and uh, treatment information. And then on the right, there's some links to some recipes. So my friend uh, Marie V. John has a... Has a knotweed hummus recipe on her website. This was an article she wrote for Gardenista. Bon Appetit had a whole article on Japanese knotweed with like 12 ideas for recipes. And uh, and then another friend of mine, Lita Meredith, has uh, a recipe on uh, Japanese knotweed bars. I guess like energy bars. But if you if you just Google up knotweed recipes, there are a ton of them out there. We'll be doing events. I, I know that we have one event at a demonstration site scheduled for June 20th in Hancock at Fireman's Field, and we will be scheduling other ones at Skinners Falls and Deposit Village Park. Not, we, It's just a plant that we have to figure out how to live with. The other thing that that I deal with a lot is that some of the original research was done in England. and under laboratory conditions they found that knotweed will reproduce from a fragment of rhizome that is you know the size of the white part of your fingernail when you talk to people about knotweed management they say that it'll reproduce from a fragment the size of your fingernail of the stalk so when you cut it uh, you have to haul it away burn it do something because it'll reproduce from the stalk or if it's in an active river area and there's a flood, all these stalks will go downstream and spread the knot. That's not true. Um, but it's based on this original research that said that fragments can lead to reproduction. I think they conjectured that it could reproduce from the stalk or from nodes on the stalk. Jessica is actually looking into that to see if it's true. But those are under laboratory conditions with nutrients and and Jessica is uh, partner in the project with the National Park Service why don 't you talk about that a little bit?
2: so a lot of the papers that I had been reading because we did start cutting it last year, and um, it doesn 't really just start growing on its own or growing new roots or anything. A lot of the papers they'll like they 'll take a piece of knotweed stock, but then they like soak it in these nutrient waters and they put it in soils that you might buy at a garden center and so this Coming fall, I'm going to work with a high school in Sullivan County and they're, they've got a greenhouse and some test pots and they're going to figure out the seed question for the three different species. Uh, they're also going to look at the water weight of knotweed because it does hold a lot of water and one, that's one of the things that when you cut it, you're giving that water to the other plants too now that they can absorb it and take it away from knotweed. Um, so they're going to do that they're going to also, the seeds and then they're going to take from different sections of the plant and see how you really can propagate it if it has to be a node or if it can be anywhere on the stalk or a leaf or or a seed or the rhizome
7: so my theory on the that it would reproduce from cutting was that if you cut it with flail motors that would bring up some of the rhizome it could reproduce from that but if you cut it with like uh, horizontally with like a Uh, machete or a a weed whacker and you were just getting stalks, you weren't getting any of the rhizome. There is a biocontrol for knotweed uh, that has been experimented with extensively in England and Canada and in the U.S. at Cornell and out in Oregon. (laughs) The FDA has opened for comment a uh, regulation that would allow the the release of this thing into the wild. Uh, It's a psyllid I think it's called and it's a moth who lays eggs in knotweed and the larvae eat the knotweed and inhibit its robustness and hopefully lead to its control. The comment period was I think it's pretty much over but the comment period was last fall and the interesting thing about the comments was that there were active there was an extensive active campaign against the release by beekeepers. By honey honeybeekeepers who prized knotweed for the pollen and nectar and they said we don't want to see the knotweed eradicated. The tests that led up to the comment period included seeing if uh, this psyllid would um, impact any other commercial crops and the closest related commercial crop to it is buckwheat and they found that the moth could favor the buckwheat if there was no not-wheat, but that was a very low probability. They didn't think it was an impact. It probably will be released sometime this year. It will be released very slowly. Somebody has to raise these things up, and uh, probably it will be university projects under fairly controlled conditions for a while. I personally don't like engineered natural solutions, but people are working on this, and I think we'll see it in a while there's no guarantee that it'll be successful. So the difference, the giant knotweed and and the Japanese